I find it a little difficult to say what the subject matter is going to be because it's too fundamental to give it a title. I'm going to talk about what there is. See, I'm a philosopher and I'm not going to argue very much because if you don't argue with me, I don't know what I think. So if we argue, I say thank you because though going to the courtesy of your taking a different point of view, I understand what I mean. Hello and welcome to The Last Turtle Podcast. In today's episode, I am talking to Carrie Jenkins, who is a philosopher and a writer. She wrote the recent book, What Love Is and What It Could Be. And we talk about philosophy and about polyamory and about her book and her theory about the dual nature of love. We had about 45 minutes and I feel like we barely scratched the surface with uh, any of those topics but it was a fascinating conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy it. I'll give you Carrie Jenkins. First of all, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's great to have you. Yeah, no, thanks for asking me. And I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you mainly about philosophy itself and about polyamory, and of course about your book, which was absolutely fantastic. I loved it. The book is called uh, What Love Is and What It Could Be. Uh, and I listened to the audiobook version, which is nice to hear you sort of uh, speak it out loud. What's great about it, just first and foremost, is that it was very nuanced and it really does something that I, I feel is missing today in conversation and in philosophy, perhaps uh, a little bit, which is taking multiple perspectives and not, there's like a railing against binary thinking which you seem to be doing. So I, I appreciate that very much. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, it certainly, it, it certainly tries to step away from some of the obvious categories and the obvious assumptions that tend to infect these conversations, um, whether they're happening in philosophy or, you know, just in everyday situations. These, these things tend to sneak in unless we're paying attention. And so I, I was doing my best, but obviously I'm still a human and so there's there's more <laughs> there are more i've snuck in my own baseline assumptions right? so <laughs> i'm we, sure we just need and, to keep and, it moving along yeah hopefully the idea is that we keep sort of reinspecting and evolving our perspective and our frame of reference and, and frameworks yeah i mean this kind of relates to um how i think about philosophy generally you know i've been um been thinking about this lately and the more i think about it the less i think an accurate picture of philosophy has one person in a room having genius ideas like by themselves. <laughs> and really to capture what philosophy is, we need to be thinking about a massive ongoing conversation. It has many, many participants to it. Um, and it's able to achieve what it can because it stretches out far beyond what any one individual person could accomplish by themselves. Yeah, and I think uh, a big part in why why Part of my mission for this podcast and I think a lot of other people is to create a, a conversation and put things in uh, out there and the reason I love talking to people and created the podcast is to stress test my ideas <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it yeah so a description of your book that you that really resonated and when I heard it is actually a great description for my intent for the podcast was an exercise in critical thinking out loud. Yeah, yeah, right? And it, and it has to be done out loud. And I think I talk about this in the book too. It has to be done out loud because, um, you know, it matters whether other people hear, um, not because I want them to believe me about everything or I think I'm right about everything, but it really matters that other people are being um, 
encouraged into the conversation and being given more spaces and more opportunities to talk and, and think about these things. Yeah. And so you, you got into philosophy pretty early on, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. 17, uh, 17, 18 was when I started sort of really dedicating my life in that direction. Cool. And I, I'm curious what your thoughts are about the role of philosophy today. Because of my interest in it, I, 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 wor- I, suspect that I have a skewed view because it seems like it's sort of coming back to the fore or at least uh, some interesting aspects of technology is bringing the need for, you know, uh, people are hiring like moral philosophers for uh, automatic, you know, vehicles and other stuff like that. Is is philosophy making a comeback or is it just me? Well, I mean, it, it might be that it's getting more sort of visibility in certain contexts. Um, I don't think that the need for philosophy has ever gone away. Agreed. We've faced similar kinds of ethical questions, similar kinds of metaphysical questions, um, you know, since forever. (laughs) And um, the fact that we sort of have maybe a little more awareness of the fact that they are philosophical questions is a good thing. Um, So, you know, sometimes when you talk about um, moral philosophers or philosophers actually being hired, um, that's an, what that is, is an appreciation of the fact that there is something here that is a philosophical question that requires philosophical, um, dedicated philosophical attention and not just something that is, um, you know, any, any throwaway answer will do. Um, and that's an attitude that can be really dangerous, I think, really damaging um, and you can find it in lots of surprising contexts, like even you see published articles out of other disciplines, for example, that are very dismissive about philosophy as a discipline, but then go on to do philosophy and not to do it very well, and not to take account of the fact that they are doing it. Um, and so that, I think, is a problem. Um, and yeah, I think sometimes so, sometimes what this what this comeback is, is a, a recognition of the fact that there is there's something there that we need to pay attention to. Yeah, and it seems like more people are doing philosophy than are realizing or willing to admit. Right. Which, uh, um, but it, but that also brings me to an aspect that I've noticed more and more. Um, that I was trying to give it a name, and and the, the thing I came up with is is just like citizen science, this sort of citizen philosophy. Mm-hmm. Like some some of my favorite thinkers that I consider sort of these sort of semi modern philosophers are not people who are you know, um, academically trained in philosophy or would even consider that they're doing philosophy. But there are people like, uh, I don't know if you know Joe Rogan and his podcast and some other people who are just thinking out loud and talking about all sorts of subjects in a very philosophical uh, perspective. Yeah, I think podcasts are a very good format for this. And, you know, it takes me right back to this idea of philosophy not really being about one person in a room, you know, just coming up with a great idea by themselves. It's about conversations. And um, I think podcasters of, of various stripes are like at the, sometimes at the forefront of moving discussions along in ways that, you know, a lot of academic philosophers perhaps could could benefit from. Um, there's, a, there's a tendency within certain certain of the institutional structures of academia to reward um, thinking that kind of goes around on on itself, goes around in circles and follows specific trains of thought that are already well trodden because those are the ones where you can publish a paper in the prestigious journals most easily. Um, And that is a problem, right? If you need, if you want a discipline to be flourishing and thriving with new and original ideas. And so I think there's, um, there's something to be said for 
um, a little bit more willingness to to find philosophy everywhere, <laughs> to acknowledge philosophy where it is, which is not just in philosophy departments, but all over the place, including um, podcasts. I, I explicitly now consider myself to be an interdisciplinary researcher, and I'm very interested in creative writing, and I, I have a funded project at the moment that looks at intersections between philosophy and poetry, where I'm trying to find more um, inputs, basically, into into my philosophical work on love from outside of the, the disciplinary boundaries. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's important to 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 uh, to call that what it is, which is, you know, yeah, citizen philosophy is a good name. I hadn't thought of it that way, but um, the fact that the fact that everyone is doing it all the time, I think, is it's just we, we can't overlook that, right? So the only question is. Are we going to call that what it is? We're going to admit that it is philosophy. Try to do it as well as possible. Try to do it as you know, in a way that encompasses as many perspectives and questions and and viewpoints as we can. Or are we going to do the other thing? <laughs> are we going to shut it down? Um, are we going to ignore it? Are we going to belittle it? I think those are the dangerous options. Yeah, yeah, and I'm curious if you sort of separate some as some topics or subjects. Of philosophical inquiry, um, sort of for for work and for fun, in a sense of like you know, or perhaps it's it's you know what interests you uh, leads to what you end up um, thinking about and working with or writing about, and um, and and then I don't know. In your spare time, you still think about you know free will and the simulation hypothesis, <laughs> uh, even though if you don't write about it or something. I've been kind of fortunate in that my work philosophy. Um, has always been able to be responsive to my intellectual interests. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of that has to do with just the, the trajectory that they took. You know, I started my career working and I was completely fascinated by um, the epistemology of arithmetic, especially sort of fundamental arithmetical truths. You know, how do we know that two plus two equals four, stuff like that. And that's one of the areas where... Um, you know, it's it's difficult to be so radical and shocking that most philosophers won't want to talk to you. <laughs> Probably won't want to talk to you because you're so boring. Like, whatever your view is, basically, it's kind of boring in that area for most people. Um, and so I think that if I had started out where I am now, which is deeply interested in the philosophy of love and some of the more, um, to some people, morally challenging um, aspects of that, uh, I think that would it would have been very hard for me to make a career as a philosopher. Um, and I think this is important, and it kind of speaks to that the, the question of how we've set the discipline up as an institution, right? That um, if if I if I had been trying to do the work I'm able to do now as a tenured professor, if I've been trying to do that as a grad student, I'm not sure I would have been able to. Um, and maybe things are changing a little bit. So I think even in the last uh, 15, 20 years, um, some of, some of this has has got a little bit less restrictive, and there are more spaces in um, academic philosophy departments to to pursue a more diverse range of um, interests and um, philosophical questions and philosophical traditions. But I think there's more work to be done. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's very unfortunate, and it does seem like, or well, hopefully, it is actually. Um, changing a little bit over time and we are making progress and and you do talk about this in the book a little bit as well both your personal life and being able to uh talk about you know something that's not sort of socially accepted 
but perhaps because of your current position and in, in the work you do, you have a little more protection and a little, you know, more ability to speak about it publicly. But even I'm sure as, as a woman, just writing about love would be, you know, pigeonholed and, and kind of problematic. Um. <laughs> yeah, it, can, it certainly can be. Um, it's, I mean, this is one of the really interesting things about, about writing and thinking about love. On, on the one hand, you know, it does get, it gets classified as women's business, women's interests, right? right. Relationships, romance, etc. Um, on the other hand, if you look at the philosophy of love, um, and you try to find the women's voices. Suddenly, it's all it's all men. Right? It's all it's all it's all Plato or it's Nietzsche or you know it's not. Um, so it's actually it's a very this is a very interesting. It's almost like the gendering of philosophy wins over the gendering of love, right? So the gendering hmm. of philosophy as male wins. So when you put it together with love, which is gendered as a female interest, it still it still seems to come up heavily male dominated. At least if we're looking sort of back into the the canon, and I'm, I'm using my scare quotes here, although you can't see them. Um, I, I have lots of thoughts and feelings about the idea of a canon, a philosophical canon or a literary canon. Um, but, you know, I think this is partly how um, my work is, um, my work is positioned in this really interesting space um, that sees it kind of, you know, with one, one foot in academic philosophy and one foot um, quite far out of the door of academic philosophy and looking elsewhere. Um, and that is partly because of the way that philosophy is gendered and the way that work, um, working as a philosopher, it's very hard for people to, um, to accept. Um, how can I put this? It's hard for people to look at someone who looks like me and see something that fits with their stereotype <clears throat> or their paradigm of a philosopher. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's hard for me to squarely occupy that role. That's something I've been struggling against my entire career. Um, now, now that I have this, uh, this topic of interest that is quite largely feminized, at least when you walk into, say, the nonfiction area of, of a bookstore, um, I've got this whole other opportunity to be, to be pigeonholed by gender <laughs> into um, something else that doesn't quite fit me. And sometimes, I mean, so for example, you know, you see this book, sometimes I'm um, being shelved under self-help um, and women's, you know, women's interests, <laughs> self-help, relationships, love. And that also isn't where, um, you know, that's not a natural fit um, for this book and it doesn't accurately represent me any more than does the male gendered stereotype of a, of a philosopher. Um, and so I'm kind of, I'm kind of not really a comfortable, a comfortable fit into any of these boxes, but somehow managing to have a foot in each of them, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. Enables the work to exist. And I think that, I think that's an interesting, that's an interesting feature of it. Did you pick or have a say in the cover of the book, which is also read with hearts and all, all that? You know, the cover was, this was an interesting conversation. I did not design the cover. Um, when it came out, I looked at it and I was like, this is a pretty gendered cover. Um, looks pretty much like a book for women. Um, and so I did actually, like, there was a little bit of conversation with, with the publisher about that. Um, and I mean, by the end of that conversation, one of the things that had happened was that I had just started to really like the cover. Um, and so <laughs> I didn't want to change it because I actually just think it's, <laughs> I think it's very aesthetically pleasing. Like I, I enjoy it. Um, and so I think, but, but certainly I, I felt this sort of gendered, um, the gendered nature of the cover, um, 
right. could, could be part of the process of uh, putting it into some of the wrong boxes out there in the world. But then, you see, I, uh, taking this on a step further in my thinking, I said, well, maybe it's not a bad thing if I am in those wrong boxes or this book is in those wrong boxes because uh-huh. that means I'm reaching readers and audiences I would not otherwise be able to reach. An excellent Trojan horse of sorts. Right? <laughs> you know, I, it's a little bit like I was talking to someone um, the other day, I was, actually for another podcast, I was talking about, um, I was interviewed on um, ABC Nightline, a US news show, and um, it was quite, uh, how can I put it, sensationalized, like the, the depiction <laughs> yeah. of my relationships and all that sort of thing. Um, and, I, and I, I said, well, you know, of course, that's not really 100% what I would have chosen. But if I want to have the opportunity to say a few words to, you know, millions of people watch this show, um, then that is the pragmatically speaking, the price I have to pay to do that. And in that instance, I was willing to pay it. But this is this is sort of constant trade off and constant judgment calls about how much how much I'm willing to trade off to be able to speak to more people or to be able to speak to different people than I otherwise would. It's about sort of how, how to present myself in the world. Right, right. And and it is it, it is very interesting. I've been listening to some of your interviews and watching. I've watched the, the Nightline um, segment and I was curious about, it's a combination of things. So it wasn't clear to what degree do you want to talk about your own sort of personal perspective. It was what catapulted um, writing the book, uh, it seems. And it's something that I know you wrote, uh, so just to sort of clarify, you're a polyamorous person, you have a husband, you have a boyfriend, um, and and it's almost inseparable in sort of the position you ended up in, but it does it does seem like you still wanted to, like the, the this little paper or manifesto you wrote together with your husband was in large part to the other, the people out there who are less fortunate in the position to being able to be open about something like that and who are encouraged at least internally even at the very least um, by someone like you writing about this so publicly. I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah. So thanks. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of a lot of moving parts there. I mean, one is, you know, I, I say, I think in the book and I also, when I go around and talk about this, I acknowledge the kinds of privilege that I have in terms of professional um, security uh, in terms of, you know, respects in which I'm socially and economically secure, privileged, lucky, you know, I'm lucky to have um, the support of family and some of my friends, Um, you know, I'm not going to lose all of that by being openly poly, which other people, you know, not everybody has that. So I I acknowledge that's part of it. Um, And then, yeah, beyond that, there's there's this question of... um, how my uh, life and my work uh, are related to each other. And when I started writing um, about love, I, I, I was less um, quick to acknowledge the interconnections than I perhaps should have been. Um, but I think in many ways I was, I was sort of starting out by picking up a bundle of philosophical methodology that says, imagine you being completely objective and you speak for everybody about the nature of love. Um, and it took me a little while to realize, come on, with love, that's just really <laughs> obviously not going to happen. And it's not even clear to me why that's something you should want to do, right? I don't think that being an entirely objective observer um, and 
trying to speak the universal truth for everybody about the nature of love or what it is for everybody, what it should be for everybody, is something that's not something I aspire to. I'm not sure it's something anyone should aspire to. I think it's potentially a very, very dangerous thing to aspire to. Um, so um, then I started to realize more and more actually how I, how I think and how I live my life are, are interconnected. And that's, that's actually fine, right? That's good. It's good if my, <laughs> if my thinking and my practice and my love line up, right? If, they, if they're all kind of um, um, uh, cohering with one another, that makes sense of, of me as a, uh, you know, a, a, as a whole human being. So I, so I started to write about it um, in, in that spirit. Um, the other thing about doing so is anticipating the very, very obvious objection that I'm biased, right? So um, <laughs> you know, someone reads a book about the nature of love and, oh, what a surprise, it defends uh, non-monogamous love and sort of interested, very interested in sort of exploring the metaphysics of that. And the person, the author, turns out to be herself polyamorous. And that just feels like the sort of thing you want to say up front, so that nobody is, um, you know, nobody feels like it was a bait and switch by the time they get to the end of their very objective account and realize right. it's actually not that objective. But this, I mean, what I really feel like is nobody, nobody has zero baggage, and so you know, the most, the, the most uh, interesting approach is to. Put your baggage on the table and say look this is my situation where i'm coming from and so here's what i think and here's how it relates to the bits of baggage that i brought to the table um, and then we're in a position to to just you know have have conversations about all of that um, the the thing that is risky i think is pretending that we don't have baggage and that includes baggage that is of the quotes traditional kind right that is also a form of baggage a form a, a baseline set of assumptions it's just when it's the normal one, I'm doing air quotes all over the place here, when it's the normal <laughs> set, people don't notice it and they don't call you biased for having it. Right. Yeah, and I think it comes across in all sorts of uh, articles of, of people when they try to appear objective or unbiased, uh, it, it, it almost sometimes um, kind of reveals it to, to be even more you know, off the mark in some way. can be. I mean, it's, it's, I think it might be related to this, um, you know, the psychological self-licensing effect where uh, you know, these things like the more you say that you are um, not sexist and completely gender blind, <laughs> right, the, the more likely you then are to make gender biased assessments in a task where you don't realize that, you know, these, these things have been um, set up in that correlated manner. So, I mean, it's things, things like that, I think, being, uh, I've come to see announcements of how objective and unbiased one is as kind of a red flag, at least, um, yeah, and a, yeah. a, ch a chance to look for what it, what it, what makes them feel like they need to say that, um, and uh, you know, could it be that that's really a, a little bit of self licensing? Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I, I did want to say that, you know, I was introduced to the concept. I, I think I always sort of knew about it somewhere in, in the back of my, my mind, but was personally introduced to, to people and the idea of ethical non-monogamy, which is another way to put it that I really like, um, into polyamory in general, like about almost two years ago, and, and immediately and very quickly realized that very likely that was a good fit for me. And of course, it was a sort of revelation and didn't take long to think that it didn't apply to everybody else and there's no one size fits all in fact you know knowing much 
uh, earlier before that that I didn't want to have children, which was a, a struggle socially <laughs> in a multitude of ways, uh, revealed to me that there is no one-size-fits-all. And it took a while to even acknowledge to myself that that is okay in and of itself and that I wasn't malfunctioning or something like that. The reason that's hard is because there's so many messages that tell you that it, that it is broken in some way, right? Like Bertrand Russell was all over this, right? Um, if, you, if you don't have children, your love is sort of defective, right? He actually kind of, he says it's unfulfilling, it's not complete and things like that. So, you know, it's, it's really kind of, these things, these norms are really deep ingrained in social messaging. And even when sensible, philosophically trained people, like, <laughs> just open their mouths, these, these things just tend to come back out. Yeah, yeah. And to, and to the degree, and I just wanted to say sort of as a, as a side note to thank you for talking about these things, because quickly after getting into all of this and discovering your uh, i think i think the first thing i saw is one of your articles about uh, polyamory before i i learned about the book and someone who's uh, a philosopher um who's who's you know talking clearly about all sorts of things and being brave enough to be public about it and i know it, it appears very clearly that it still is more difficult there is more um, social cost for women to even say something like that, whether it is being child-free or being polyamorous. And so to the to whatever small degree that it is, um, you know, it gave me permission to be a little less uh, afraid about it. Um, and to the degree that me saying here on the podcast is sort of outing myself as well, if that helps other people, I'm happy to do it. It's not something that I feel compelled to do, but it's something that because I realized when, when hearing you talk about it gave me a little more permission, I feel I should do the same. So thank you. Yeah, I, like, it, it happens to me a lot now that um, you know, folks, folks will come up to me and say, oh, hey, me too, um, but I can't really talk about it. And I'm glad <laughs> somebody else is. And so you know, that, does, that, makes, that does very strongly reinforce this feeling that you're describing that, yeah, it's not like I particularly care to keep announcing to the world like you know personal facts about my life but i'm i'm now just very very aware that it has a, a beneficial consequence and one that i wish i had had available to me when i was whatever 14 or thinking about relationships in a, in a serious way for the first time um and I, I never had any of this conceptual apparatus i never had any role modeling of anything other than monogamy um and you know my role models of monogamy, uh, you know, cultural like media representations of monogamous relationships. Sometimes they were terrible, um, <laughs> but that was just that was all there was. There was nothing else. And so I'm I'm just kind of actually this is one of the things that I probably should have mentioned in connection with the previous question too. I one of the reasons for talking about my own life in the book is, yeah, it makes <laughs> it makes a kind of statement that the the theoretical version of the book could not make which is this is this is a real thing I'm a real person who does this um, I'm not like a monster or uh, you know someone that you can just dismiss as whatever whatever your favorite stereotype of uh, of a morally loose woman might be I mean you certainly there are people who who categorize me that way and dismiss me that way but I think it's a lot harder um, again, coming back to to the, to the ways that I'm privileged to do that to someone who's a professor and someone who dresses in suits and things, right? And doesn't look like what this sort of West Coast hippie, right. like you know, it's it's a lot harder to do to do the dismissive thing when it's coming um, 
in this sort of format, from this kind of kind of person, um, in this kind of way. And I think that's important. I think it, you know, it matters. It does open up space for, for other people. Yeah, yeah, and I, I like that. And um, and something interesting that you you also mentioned in, in the book, and you give the example of the the KISSING sort of nursery rhyme and um, romantic comedies. You talk about you know you're you're sort of looking at romantic love, and and once again you sort of try to um, take a higher perspective uh, instead of. Um, the reductionist sort of view of either it's all biology or it's all a social construct. You sort of look at this hybrid perspective that makes a lot of sense. Um, and in the, in the social uh, side of things, you really illustrate how it's ingrained so early on and so repetitive in a bunch of forms of, of media that we get. And we get the picture of what, what we think it's supposed to look like mm-hmm. and how it's supposed to look like for, for everyone, mm-hmm. even though it's, it's changing over time. Right. And the, the fact that we just get this sort of, um, you know, one story being told over and over and over again, um, eventually that builds up into what I call a composite image. You know, when you layer mm-hmm. multiple images on top of one another, um, certain features become very um, salient, right? You get these strong emerging contours and, yeah, monogamy is is a really big part of that. The um, the involvement of the baby in a baby carriage is a big part of that, right? The involvement of marriage is a big part of that. Um, the fact that it's it's usually one boy's name and one girl's name in the rhyme yeah. is part of that, right? And so these things um, they sort of become our socially constructed um, romantic script. Right? They become our, our yeah. romantic norms. Um, and so, so, yeah, part of the reason I want to keep that in the picture as well as the biological realities is just to to acknowledge that both of these are really powerful, right? It's not like there's one of them's real and the other one's kind of made up. They're both real. Um, and we have to kind of stay aware of how they fit together or fail to fit together, I think. Yeah. And uh, and I'm curious because, you know, with all of that around us and, and, and like you said, you grew up with no good role models or, or even people... Th- thinking or talking about these these aspects too much if it's not a too personal of a question i am curious how did you come about the sort of the realization about polyamory with regards to your own life uh it was related to um sort of getting together with my husband and you know it was something that we were both interested in um, and so we were able to have a conversation about that um, and that was actually part of what made me realize I'm not the only person in the world or even in my social circle for whom this is a live possibility and a, and a, and a genuine interest. Um, so it was around about that time that I started then to read things like um, Opening Up by Tristan Taramino um, and, you know, The Ethical Slut and these sort of slightly older books, um, just introducing the conceptual machinery for thinking about ethical non-monogamy um, and then it's sort of, it, it, yeah, I mean, it, once you have the, the basic concepts on the table, you can, you can go back to a lot of um, your ethical and philosophical yeah. theories with those and say, hang on a second. <laughs> and then, yeah, a few, yeah. A few years down the line, that's where, that's where the book came from. Yeah. And, and it's very interesting because to me, it's becoming more and more obvious that there is no one size fits all. Uh, and a lot of things are on 
either they're on a, a spectrum where there are variations and there are people who are more fluid, again, whether it's gender or um, types of relationship. When I think about, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, amato normativity. And um, what was interesting to me about also discovering poly um, was not just that there is, you can either be monogamous or non-monogamous, but somehow with polyamory, there suddenly opened up this multiple possible variations of relationship and relationship types where someone, let's say asexual, uh, perhaps, who might have a hard time finding a partner, right. but in an intricate polyamorous a combination of relationships, someone can find their place a little better, perhaps. Right. I mean, it opens up so many other, right, so many more possibilities for combining things that do or don't work um, than just, you know, yeah. one, one person has to be your everything. Um, and right. so, um, yeah, I mean, one, one kind of possibility that's, that's also really um, made invisible in the conventional normative monogamous structure is, um, you know, a, a long-term committed partnership that doesn't look like moving in together and, um, you know, setting up home, setting up family, um, but looks more like what people would think of as dating or boyfriend or girlfriend or non-binary friend type of relationship, right? Um, and that sort of, once you've started, it, it's kind of like you get a lot of extra conceptual challenges for free once you step away from the, <laughs> the mononormative uh, model. You get you get all these other, well, hang on a second, yes, why do I assume, you know, that this bundle of ideas goes together whereby one person will be the person that I marry and the person that I live with and the person that I, I want to share my bank account and my laundry and I only have sex with them forever and they're going to be the parent of my children. Why would one person do all of those things? Once you've got that question on yeah. the table, there's a lot, yeah, a lot follows. <laughs> yeah, and what's interesting, uh, and, and part of the difference perhaps between the biology and and um, the social aspect of all of that, of relationships and, and, and love in general, is that even though biology seems to be evolving at a slower pace, and is it is perhaps, and I don't know what you think about this, is perhaps this sort of foundation layer, um, you know, the social construct are, are obviously a, some kind of an emergent phenomena, but they're both influencing each other. But it's clear or easier to see that the social aspects do evolve or change over time in a much smaller uh, span of time. I think that's right. And with the social side, it's also, I think, much easier to see how to intervene and bring about change. Um, so one thing about the biological side of love is that we don't know, I, you, we really don't have a good handle on how that all works yet. We're just starting, right? Um, right. But I mean, you know, we would need to understand the brain way, way better than we do. Um, and also <laughs> its connections with all the rest of the body. Um, and I think we would need more sophisticated theorizing about things like evolutionary history. Um, and that includes bringing philosophers into those discussions in order to do things like, you know, spot um, points where uh, assumptions are being made that are being imported that are inappropriate into this, this type of theorizing. Um, so I think, you know, t one of the things that's nice about appreciating that there's more than just the biology going on is that it, it opens up very obvious ways to intervene and get straight into the process of social change, um, which is not to say it's easy, right? <laughs> it's not to say right. that it can necessarily be done very very quickly, but sometimes it can. Sometimes it does happen very quickly. You know, I, I, um, I had no idea that I would think about um, queer love as normal by the time I was 
the age I am now. When I was like a 17 year old, I don't think I had even heard the phrase queer love. It wouldn't really have occurred to me to think about queerness in terms of love, right? It's It was just very kind of, it was normatively ruled out by my the conceptual structures I was growing up with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, that change has been relatively rapid. Um, I'm not 100% confident that, that, it's a, that, that we're still moving in a uniformly good progressive <laughs> direction anymore, but... Uh, you know, it's it, it's a way of it's a way of maintaining at least the possibility of optimism to realize that change is possible. <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually it is encouraging, and I do I don't know if this is a good view, but I do view it sometimes like this sort of stock market where you know zoomed in in, in small little moments there's dips and ups and downs, but if you zoom out, it does seem to so there is a general upwards trend, or at least hopefully. Uh, it continues that way. I think that's often right. I think it's it's a little complicated because sometimes the large scale actually reveals downward trends. Um, you know, I think about things like when you read the Aristophanes myth in Plato's Symposium, um, and it theorizes same-sex love and opposite-sex love as just two examples of the exact same phenomenon. I think, Mm. you know, we lost that. (laughs) There was an insight right there, and it really got stomped out, and we had to recapture that by other means. Um, So I think, you know, maybe generally speaking, that's right, but I think there there is also a genuine possibility of of real long-term loss and damage of progress if we're not sufficiently you know on top of those things yeah yeah i can i can see that um well i I do want to i wanted to ask your take on because again as someone who uh it, it does seem like things are changing and again maybe i'm also placing myself in better environments that are a little more supportive i am you know i i spent you know most of my uh adult life in in los angeles now i'm in portland i'm on the west coast it's very you know open and liberal and, and kind of flexible. And so maybe my view is different, but but I remember even just going through the uh, discovery that I am not, you know, I don't fall onto the, and I'm using scare quotes, but like the standard mm-hmm. model of, uh, I always had an aversion for the relationship escalator, the expectation that you're supposed to continue moving on all the way to getting married and having children. Right, otherwise um, it's a failure of the relationship yeah yeah and and um and realizing that i i don't seem to have the presence of the desire to 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 have children and um sort of acknowledging that that is not only okay but it's okay to you know if people ask me about it to to say that and what was striking and i you know quickly discovered that it's very similar with uh polyamory is if you tell people that, and even if you right away give the caveat that this is, seems to be what's right for me, mm-hmm. a lot of people almost take it as an attack or some criticism of their way of life. And I'm curious why. It's puzzling, um, but very familiar to me also. And you quite often hear, I don't know if you hear this, I quite often hear the immediate response, well, I could never do that. I could never be like, <laughs> that's not for me. And And this is people, I think this is... <laughs> People trying to be tolerant, right? And, right. Um, but the first thing they feel like they have to do is distance and other you, right? Um, and and make clear that you've you've done something non-standard and not normal. And yeah, it's um, 
it is a strange thing. I think conversation is the solution. I, you know, I, I really think this is not something that happens when people realize how it comes across. Um, it's something that happens because people have never thought about how it comes across. Right. And it's, I don't think it's, it's not meant the way that it is. It sometimes lands. It's not meant to be distancing, othering. It's just, you know, when people hear about something, it's very natural to be like, well, I wonder if that applies to me. Oh my God, no, no, it doesn't. And then it just comes out of your mouth. Like, no, that's not me. That's not what I want to do. Um, and the fact that no one has asked them what they want to do is, is you know, it seems to sort of go by the wayside. But once it's sort of, once we are more um, able to be more open about these things in general, I mean, it, it will, I think, become more like telling someone that you're queer and then, you know, <laughs> realizing that, <laughs> them realizing that, oh, but I'm very, very straight is not... <laughs> necessarily the best thing to say back to that right but um that it that it suggests something about where you are in your thinking about those things if you say that if you think that's the most important thing to say right away in that context um so i think it's it is just awareness that that one um is just awareness um yeah do you uh do you see um polyamory changing in the way it's portrayed in the media like there's a little more um, you know, I think there's a couple of TV shows, there's a movie coming out with, with that in the subject. I still don't know if it's like per- perfect portrayals, <laughs> of course, but... Well, yeah, nothing's perfect, but I mean, just yeah. more is good. More is mm-hmm. good, even if it's imperfect, at least, you know, if you get more and more diverse representations, um, that is really the key thing. Um, I was actually at a, at a reading in um, Burnaby Public Library um, earlier this week with um, Zoe Peterson, who's written a novel called uh, Next Year for Sure that features um, you know, a couple trying and ultimately, <laughs> not, I don't give too much away here, but there are lots of trials involved at trying to become polyamorous. This depiction, you know, it's not like they're perfect, but it's just important to see things like that starting to happen um and i think there's house of cards had a a non-monogamous relationship depiction which in which it wasn't even really it wasn't a big deal you know it was just sort of there um and i think that's that's part of what we need right depictions where it's this is part of some people's lives um it doesn't have to be what the story is about necessarily right um, it's just it's just there yeah it doesn't have to be perfect it's not relationships are not generally perfect um so i think that's i think that's okay and yeah i think it is starting to happen more um and i think it it will continue to happen more the you know that kind of representation which is not the sort of hypersexualized um and or glamorized hollywood you know hollywoodification of poly um that sort of normalized representation which is the one that matters um I think will happen more just the more um, people like you and me keep talking about this stuff. Yeah, wonderful. Well, that's a fantastic note to end about. I feel like we were barely, of course, scratching the surface with all of that. And I'll mention that the uh, the book the book the book itself, of course, is, is so far beyond just. I mean, polyamory is just a uh, a tiny part of it, although I think an important one. 
of the entire framing of the book, but it is fantastic. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, you have a new podcast, which is like these bite-sized, beautifully produced kind of little nuggets about various uh, topics called labels of love. Thanks for saying it's beautifully produced. I've been, <laughs> I took so long <laughs> learning these sound editing skills. Yeah, it's it, no, it's it's great. I wish it had more you in it, but I know it's uh, you formatted it in a particular way, probably on purpose, and it's I love it. I'm I'm the book. The the podcast is yes. for showcasing other voices. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's really great, and um, and I just want to thank you for for joining me and uh, and doing well, this. Thanks very really much. It's been a really really interesting and fun conversation. Wonderful. Well, keep up the fantastic work, and I wish you luck with all your endeavors. Thanks, you too. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I will link to Carrie's book and her website and Twitter in the show notes, which you can find at lastturtle.com slash five for the episode number. If you'd like to hear more and support this podcast, you can go to lastturtle.com slash support to support me on Patreon or donate some Bitcoin. Or you can leave a review on iTunes or mark his favorite on Overcast or any other podcast app that you have. And that is greatly appreciated. Until next time, thank you for listening.